0: Listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year we have begun a new series titled Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this king and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Well, brothers and sisters, we get to carry on in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, so if you'll take your Bibles and open up to the book of 1st Samuel this morning, we're going to be in chapter 9. And we're going to read chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. So we've got a big scripture text this morning to work through. And God has treasures for us in his Word. So open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. So hear the word of God. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish son of Abil, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys." And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water, and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, "He is, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for he will meet him, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the tribes of the, of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave to you of which I said to you, put it aside. And so the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into, into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. And at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, "'Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God.' Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, "'Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel?' And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? And you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gebeth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there as you come... And as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah behold a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets the people said to one another What has come over the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of a place answered Who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they inquired again of the Lord, "'Is there a man still to come?' And the Lord said, "'Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage.'" Then they ran and took him from there, and when he had stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gabeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. And if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Then he mustered them at Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the, next day, pe- the pe- and the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, "'Who is it that said, shall, shall shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death.' But Saul said, "'Not a man shall be put to death this day, "'for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel.' And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. So there we have the story, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. It's a lot of text. And so we'll start off our sermon this way. The Bible has a lot of ugly stuff in it. There's murder, there's adultery, there's treachery, there's cowardice, and much more. And in First and Second Samuel, we're going to see a lot of ugly stuff in it. In fact, it seems that the book of First and Second Samuel has a penchant for ugly stuff. First and 2 Samuel collects and gathers and sets before us stories full of murder, adultery, treachery, and cowardice. In First and 2 Samuel, we get this heaping portion of ugly. So here's the question we need to think about this morning. Why does the Bible expose us to all of this ugly stuff? Why does the Bible expose us to all of this ugly stuff? And this is a question worth our wrestling, isn't it? All that we find in the Bible, all of this ugly stuff, is due to a conscious decision made by God Himself. He could have written His book a different way. He could have scrubbed the book and made it squeaky clean, but but God didn't do that. He recorded all of these ugly stories, reminding us of all these ugly deeds for a reason. And all this talk about ugly stuff is not peripheral, because we're going to have to deal with all of the ugly stuff head on in the life of Saul. And so in our reading this morning, we were introduced to Saul, the first king of Israel. And as we pursue Saul's story in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, we're going to find a lot of ugly stuff about Saul. In fact, Saul is the most troubling character we're going to meet in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. And so as the story moves us through this This life of Saul, it's not going to pull back from us. We're going to find all sorts of ugly things about Saul's life. We're going to find Saul scared. His army is going to be faltering and failing. They're going to be running for their homes. And so out of fear, he's going to disobey the Word of God. In another scene, we're going to find Saul obstinate, proud, and rebellious. Instead of carrying out the orders of holy war, we're going to find him keeping Agag alive. And keeping treasure for himself and for his men. And then in another scene, we're going to find Saul green with envy. Saul is going to chase David around his house and around the country, trying to destroy him. We're going to find Saul out of his mind. Instead of experiencing the life giving power of the Spirit, the Lord is going to send him a troubling, a distressing Spirit that's going to torment him. And then at the very end of Saul's life, we're going to find him dead. And Saul's death isn't a good death or a noble death. He falls on his own sword in the presence of the Philistines, and then he is plundered by an Amalekite. Saul is undone by his enemies. And so the question is, what are we supposed to do with all the ugly that we find in Saul's life? And so we have this issue of ugly, and now we need to find some sort of answer. And so here's the plan for this morning. First thing we're going to do is we're just going to stick our nose into our Bibles, and we need to listen to this introduction to Saul very carefully. So the Old Testament, especially Old Testament narrative, never wastes words. And so the text is going to give us some important clues about the life of Saul, and these clues are going to help us make sense of all the ugly that we find in Saul's life. So we're going to stick our noses in the Bible, and after we do that, we're going to do a second thing. We're going to circle back to this question, what do we do with all the ugly in Saul's life? Better yet, what do we do with all the ugly we find in the Bible? And we're going to give some answers to that question. So let's stick our noses in the Bible and try to understand this text. So the first thing we have to understand about chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 is that the story of first and 2 Samuel is moving towards kingship. And the story has been preparing us for this move towards kingship. So if you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we listened to this song by Hannah. And in her song, she sang about what? She ended her song by singing about a coming king. She said this, chapter 2, verse 10. He will give strength to his king... And exalt the horn of his anointed. So those are helpful words to keep in our back pocket as we move through this story. Kings aren't inherently bad. In fact, we see that it is God's plan that Israel will have a king. This is God's design, kingship for Israel. In fact, as we think about it this morning, this is the very gospel we yet proclaim to this very day. God's plan is for a king. And so what do we proclaim to the nations? We proclaim Jesus Christ is the one true king. But as we continue to read on in this story, we realize that something is not right when Israel goes to Samuel and makes this demand, give us a king like all the nations around us. And it becomes clear as we listen to the story that Israel is rebelling by asking for a king and the Lord responds negatively to it. chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, they've rejected me from being king over them. And then Samuel tells us what this asked for king will be like. And Samuel's sermon is a real downer. He says to the people, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And Samuel concludes his sermon by looking at the people and saying, you will be his slaves. And so with all of that information, it's God's plan that Israel have a king. Israel sins by asking for a king like the nations that we meet Saul. We meet Saul and we're left wondering... Where is Saul going to fit into this narrative? What is Saul going to be like for the people of God? And so we have a big chunk of Scripture in front of us. We've got three whole chapters, and there's a reason why we read chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. These three chapters make up the ascension of Saul to the throne of Israel. Now, we have to understand something about these three chapters. Kings are not made in a moment. And so we have to put the fairy tale story out of our heads. And so in the fairy tale story, there's a guy and you find the guy and what do you do? You put a crown on his head and all of a sudden he's the king and everybody serves him and he's in in charge of everything. But in actual history, in actual life, it's a bit more complicated than that. And we see the complications in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. And so we can think of these three chapters. And in fact, this is going to extend on in the narrative into chapter 12 and a chapter 13 as, as Saul's job interview for kingship. And so as you think about a job interview, we're, we're all accustomed to them. There's a certain process. So you send in your resume to an employer and perhaps you get a sit-down interview, and then if the sit-down interview goes well, they check your references and follow up on that, and perhaps you get a trial period to work with your employer, and then if all goes well, they'll confirm you, and you get this position. And so something like that's happening in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Saul's ascension consists of three steps, designation, demonstration, and confirmation. Confirmation. And so first of all, Saul is going to need to be designated. That simply means someone is going to come to Saul, and they're going to point the finger at Saul and say, you're the man for the job. You're going to be the king of Israel. And second, Saul will need to demonstrate to everyone that he is indeed fit for this job. Saul is going to have to pass a test. He's going to have to prove to Israel and to everyone that he is fit for kingship. And if he passes the test, he will move on to the third phrase of the process, and that's confirmation. He will be confirmed and he will be set apart as king over Israel. And so our job as readers, as listeners of this story, is to follow along to this three-step process and pay attention to the clues that the story gives us about Saul and what he's going to mean for God's people. So let's dig in. We'll start with designation. So Saul's story begins in a rather mundane way. Some donkeys from the family farm get lost, and he is sent off. Saul is sent off to go looking for his father's donkeys. So Saul and a servant go off, and they look, but they're, they're stymied. They search high and low. They, they travel here. They travel there. They spend their time. They spend their money. They spend their energy. And soon enough, Saul is worn out, and he doesn't want to continue the search any longer. And so he tells the young man with him, let's go back. But his servant has another idea. Let's go to the seer. And the suggestion by the servant changes the whole course of Saul's life. It's interesting how this story goes. Saul goes out looking for some lost donkeys, but what he ends up finding is a call to kingship. And so what happens next happens quickly. Saul stumbles upon Samuel. Samuel brings him to a feast, seats him at the head of the table, gives him a priest's portion of meat, and then in the morning he anoints him with oil, And says this, chapter 10, verse 1 Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So we've got a designation. What's happening here? Samuel takes his finger and he points it at Saul, and he says, You're the man for the job. You're going to be the king of Israel. And as the story sets this up, we realize that this is not happenstance. Or just circumstance. This whole scene has been arranged by the Lord. The Lord directed Saul to Samuel. And the Lord prepared Samuel for Saul. And so the question is, well, what are we supposed to make of this scene? What are we supposed to think about Saul at this point? Well, clearly this was all unexpected for Saul. You, you take in the scene and it seems like Saul is this deer caught in the headlights. Samuel points at Saul and, and Saul says, Who, me? Me? Are you talking about me? And as readers, we say that's good. No one should be greedy for kingship. There seems to be some humility within Saul, and so that's a good thing. But there's also something in this scene that makes us go, hmm, I don't know about this. And so kings in the ancient world were regularly compared to shepherds. So the Lord is going to call David to shepherd Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, when we find David, when we first meet David, he is doing what? He is shepherding his father's flocks. In Psalm 23, we'll learn about Yahweh's kingship over the nations, over Israel. And what is he called? He's called a shepherd. In fact, when Jesus explains his work as the king of Israel, what language does he use? John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so here we have Saul. And what do we learn about Saul's, Saul's shepherding skills? Well, he goes looking for his father's donkeys. He searches everywhere for them, but he doesn't find them. And we're left wondering, what kind of shepherd is Saul going to be for Israel? And so that's the designation. Now we move on to demonstration. So the designation was private. No one knew about it, not even the man who was traveling with Saul. And so this whole thing about kingship needs to go public. And so Samuel gives instructions to Saul about a public demonstration. And so Samuel's instructions begin with some assurances, and these are needed. We have to think about this situation for Saul. One moment, he is just a private citizen. A young man, and he's going to look for his father's donkeys, and then he meets Samuel, and Samuel says, You're gonna be a king. In fact, I'm gonna saddle on, saddle this responsibility on your shoulders. You're gonna to have to go save Israel from all these surrounding enemies. That's a huge change. Not many of us would say, Yes, I was waiting for this. No likely be scared. And so Samuel gives Saul three assurances to build up his faith in the word and in the call of God. First, Saul is going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb and they're going to bring him news about donkeys. Second, Saul is going to meet three men by the oak of Tabor and they're going to have all sorts of stuff in their arms. They're going to have two young goats, they're going to have some bread and they're going to have some wine and they're going to share two loaves of bread with Saul. And then third... And all of these assurances are building. They're getting bigger and greater. Saul is going to meet a group of prophets. And then chapter 10, verse 6 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And so Samuel's giving Saul all of these assurances to build him up in faith so that he would undertake the work of kingship, so that he would go through with this demonstration. And as readers, we're asking, well, what does Saul have to do to demonstrate that he is ready to be king over Israel? Well, Samuel tells us. Chapter 10, verse 7. Samuel says to Saul, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now, that sounds a bit cryptic to us, but if we look closely at the text, I think the task becomes rather clear. So if you go back to chapter 10, verse 5, Samuel tells Saul, right before he encounters these prophets and he's going to prophesy, he's going to meet a garrison of Philistines at Gabith Elohim. And so that's important to notice. Samuel's pointing out to Saul, as you travel, you're going to meet a group of Philistine soldiers. Remember that, Saul. Then in chapter 10, verse 6, Saul is promised this extraordinary experience with the Spirit of the Lord. What does the text say? The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. So this is not just merely some ecstatic experience with the Spirit. This is a crucial phrase in the Bible, and it's used in connection with one other individual in the Old Testament. Who is it? Well, the individual is in the book of Judges, and his name is Samson. And every time that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, is used with Samson in the book of Judges. Samson goes out and he kills thousands of Philistines. And so we start putting the clues together and we listen to Samuel speak to Saul and we say, what does Saul need to do? Well, he needs to do this. He needs to go attack the garrison of the Philistines and that will prove he is fit, that he's ready to be king over Israel. And so there's the assurances, there's the work that he needs to get done. But then we meet this hiccup. The text tells us all of these signs come to pass. But we never hear about Saul taking on this garrison of the Philistines. In fact, it gets worse than that. Saul comes to Gibeah, this high place, and he meets his uncle. And his uncle asks him and the young man with him what happened and what Samuel said to him. And then chapter 10, verse 16 says this. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So Samuel gets these assurances that the scene is building. He gets this work to do. Go attack the Philistines. But we don't hear about the Philistines being attacked. And then this whole scene comes to an end. Saul with his uncle. And Saul doesn't want to talk about kingship at all. And it seems to us as readers that this whole process of ascension is in trouble. Saul has a task to get done. It doesn't get done. And so what's going to happen, we ask? Is Saul done for? Well, Samuel pursues this situation, and he forces Saul's hand. And so Samuel jump starts the process again, and we get a second designation, a designation 2.0. And so Samuel calls together Israel, and a series of lots are cast. And each lot cast goes in the direction of Saul. First his tribe is taken, there's Benjamin. Then his clan is taken, the clan of the Matrites. And then finally himself, Saul himself, is taken. And now Saul can't hide. The finger is pointing at Saul, and everyone knows that it's Saul who has been called to kingship. But again, there's a problem, isn't there? Chapter 10, verse 22. He has hidden himself among the baggage, the Lord says to the people when they can't find him. And as readers, we say, this is not a good look for a king. It was okay that Saul was humble the first time he received the designation, that he was a deer caught in the headlights, but now in front of the people of God, he is hiding. This isn't looking good. But that's not the only problem we get. In chapter 10, verse 23, we're given this description of Saul. The text tells us this, he was taller than, than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And that is a description that is repeated twice. It was repeated at the beginning of chapter 9, and that's not an insignificant description. The same word tall showed up in Hannah's song. She warned us about pride. Do you remember her song? And the connection between this verse and Hannah's song becomes really clear if you retranslate Hannah's song more literally. So chapter 2 verse 3, Hannah sings this, "Do not say any more" tall, tall. And then we read in chapter 10, verse 23, Saul was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And there's this connection that the text is making. And we start asking as readers, what is Saul going to mean for the people of Israel? Is he one of the arrogant that Hannah was singing about? Is the Lord going to humiliate this man? What does this mean? And so the finger is pointing at Saul. And Saul can't avoid it anymore. And everyone knows that he has been called to kingship. And so he still has to demonstrate his position. And so some are questioning Saul, chapter 10, verse 27. These worthless men say, how can this man save us? So Saul is given his opportunity for kingship in chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite besieges the Israelite town. And like any true tyrant, this king doesn't just want victory over Jabesh Gilead. He wants to humiliate the people of Israel. He threatens to gouge out the right eye of every male. And so Saul gets word about this predicament. And by the powerful work of the Spirit, Saul jumps into action. And finally, after all of this time, Saul finally acts like a king. He takes action. He rallies the people of God together. And there's great salvation. Chapter 11, verse 11. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And so with this great victory finally over Nahash the Ammonite, this whole cycle that we've been following comes to a conclusion. We had designation, we had a demonstration that failed, we had a second designation, and now we have this demonstration. And Saul succeeded, and so the people and Samuel moved Saul into kingship. Chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord, and there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so there we have the story of Saul. And as we think about chapters 9, chapters 10, chapter 11, we have to say this is not the most pleasant story to listen to. It's full of fits and starts. While there's some success, there's a lot of failure and cowardice. While there's some joy to be had in the text, there's a party at the end of chapter 11. There's enough troubling clues that we've received during the narrative that we really can't go and join in the celebration at the end of chapter 11. And so we return to our original question, well, what do we do with Saul? What do we do with the ugly that we see in his life? And we can even broaden that out as we think broadly about the Old Testament. What do we do with all the ugly we find in Old Testament narrative? So I want to give you a few reflections this morning. And this is where we'll apply the text to our hearts. So the first reflection is this. Ugly is the human story. Ugly is the human story. And so what we find in the story of Saul, we find failure, we found cowardice, we'll find unbelief, we even find sloth. What we find in the story of Saul is not unique. When we survey the Bible, especially these stories in the Old Testament, we see rebellion, we see disobedience, we see sin, and we have to understand that none of these situations are unique. When we read these stories, we have to understand that what we're reading is we're reading the human story. And God puts all these ugly stories in the Bible because it's our story. He's speaking accurately about us. And so this has to land on us personally as we handle the Scriptures. And sometimes we're guilty of handling the Bible in the wrong way. And so we pick up the Bible and we start reading the story of Saul And we think that we are a judge, and it's our job to pass judgments on the characters that we meet. And so we look at Saul, we study Saul, and we say, I can't believe how much of a coward he was. He received three assurances from the Lord. He received the very Spirit of God, and yet he failed to take on the Philistines. I can't believe him. And here's the thing. We're not squeaky clean. We don't get to sit on the judge's bench. Instead, we're the ones who are put on trial. When we read this story, when we read stories like these, we have to understand that God is picking up a mirror and He is bidding us to come and look at ourselves. And when we come and we read these stories, we realize how ugly our own stories are. And so we just need to take this to heart and we can think about Saul's initial failure. And so the Lord is so kind to Saul. He gives him three assurances to build up his faith so that he might go work obedience. He's going to receive news about donkeys. He's going to get two loaves of bread. He's going to receive the Spirit of God. Yet Saul fails to act in faith. And what is this story asking us to do? It's asking us to examine our own hearts. The story reminds us that we all as Christians have received assurance after assurance after assurance. The Bible is a book of assurance to us. In fact, we've received the very Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of God has been poured into our hearts. And the book asks us, where are you failing to act in courage today? Where have you given way to cowardice? Has the Lord called you to take on a garrison of Philistines, but yet you're cowering with fear? Has your uncle come to you and, and, and you refuse to even speak about the matter of kingship with him? And the book all of a sudden starts to examine our own hearts, our own human experience of sin and rebellion. We have to understand that the Lord gives us these stories not to condemn us, But he gives us these stories so that the life of sin would be destroyed in us. And what is the the story of Saul calling us to do? It's calling us to put to death all cowardice and to embrace the renewing grace that is in Jesus because Jesus makes men, he makes women brave and bold for the matter of the kingdom. And so as we read chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, we have to remember ugly is the human story. We read Saul's story and we say, that's that's my story. And I need to repent of it. And God gives us these stories so that we would change. So reflection number two. God uses ugly people. God uses ugly people. And so we know a few things about Saul. Saul's start towards kingship is ugly And when Saul finally becomes king, his reign as king is going to be rather ugly. And when he ends his kingship, the ending of his kingship is going to be really ugly. But here's the thing we see in our text. God still uses Saul. So let's go back to chapter 11. There's this Ammonite king. He's making war on an Israelite city, Jabesh-Gilead. And Jabesh-Gilead is hopeless and helpless, and so what does Saul do? Well, he takes action. He rallies the people. He goes out to battle. And Saul does something good, something pleasing in the sight of the Lord, something we can applause. It is good that Saul went and saved this city. But this whole scene gets richer when we spend some time meditating on this whole scene. And so the story gives us a name for this leader of the Ammonites. And what's his name? It's not a common name. We wouldn't name our children this. It's Nahash. What does that name mean? Well, Nahash means snake. And this is so rich as you think about it. Here is this snake king, and he is besieging God's people in God's land. And what does Saul do? He goes out in the power of the Spirit of the Lord, and he saved God's people, and he defeats the snake king. And what do we have right here in the middle of all of this ugly? We have a gospel story. And this teaches us something, doesn't it? God uses ugly people. God used Saul for the good of his people and the advancement of his kingdom. And in fact, as we think about it, this story in chapter 11, Saul going and fighting Nahash, this leader of the Ammonites, foreshadows and points us towards the work of Jesus. Because what does Jesus do as he advances the kingdom? He goes forward and he fights against the serpent himself and defeats him once and for all. So if there's something amazing about this, Saul, this ugly man, teaches us about Jesus Christ and his precious gospel work. Saul points us forward to Jesus, and we get to say, in Saul, we get to see a glimpse of Jesus Christ. We get to see Christ taking on the snake king himself. And so, brothers and sisters, God is still in the business of using ugly people with ugly stories for the good of his people. We can apply this to ourselves. Here we are all gathered together and each one of us has an ugly story. Our stories are filled with sin, disobedience, rebellion. And when we examine our present lives, there's parts of our lives that are still slimy, parts of our lives we don't want anyone else to know about. But God has called us together and he is using all of us to advance his church in the present age. He's called each and every one of us to important tasks to advance the cause of the kingdom, we get to speak about the glories of his son. And the story teaches us God uses ugly people, and he's using ugly people like you and like me, even today. So reflection number three. All of this ugly prepares us for Jesus. So these ugly stories that we find in the Bible, whether we're studying Saul or studying something else, should create this deep ache in our hearts. These stories have been written down and recorded for us so that they would push us toward Jesus. Just think about Saul's ascension story. We walk through this cycle of Saul moving towards kingship, designation, demonstration, failed, back to designation, move towards demonstration, finally confirmation. As you walk away from these chapters, what are you left feeling? I feel disappointed. As I look at the life of Saul, I'm not impressed with him. In fact, if we're honest, we're a bit worried about Saul. Saul doesn't warrant our confidence. He doesn't warrant our trust. And so what does the story of Saul do? It makes us look for a different sort of king, a king who will pursue his task doggedly, a king who will create in his people a rock-solid confidence. And so what do we have to do with this story of Saul? Well, the answer is so easy. We have to run to Jesus Christ himself. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find Jesus' ascension story. And he has to work through a job interview process. He's de- he, has, he gets designated. He has to go through a demonstration. And if he passes the demonstration, he will be confirmed. Think about the life of Jesus like this. Jesus is designated. At his baptism, the Father says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then Jesus is given a task for demonstration. He must go to the cross. He has to die for sinners. He must conquer the snake himself. He must rule and reign over Satan. And what does Christ do in his story? Well, he pursues his task with everything he has. No one can turn him away from his work. When faced with temptation, what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. When faced with cowardice, what does Jesus say? Not my will be done, but yours be done. When faced with inaction, what does Jesus say? Well, he cried out this when he came into the world. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus is not a man of sloth, but when it came time to go to the work of demonstration, to go through this task, Luke chapter 9, what does Jesus do? Picking up on the words of Isaiah 50, verse 7. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And what did Jesus do in Jerusalem? Well, he got his work done. He got his work done. He went to the cross. He suffered. He bled. He died, and he did not flinch. Jesus passed the task. And what did God do? God confirmed him as king over all. He raised him from the dead And then 40 days later, he ascended through the clouds into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God forevermore. And so what does this story do? The story of Jesus satisfies our hearts. We meet the king that we need, a king of bravery, a king of courage, a king who saves us. And so we read the stories, we meditate on all the ugly stories because these ugly stories drive us to the one story that can save us and satisfy us. We look at the story of Saul and we meditate on it. We let it do its work. We don't look away from it because if we take it in, it creates this ache in our hearts and then we run to Jesus and we find him, our king, the king who saves us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. Your word is gold. It is treasure. It is sweet, sweeter than the honeycomb. And it is our great privilege to sit underneath your word. And so we pray now, would your word have its way with us? Would you move us to repentance? Would you move us to faith? Would you move us ultimately towards Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.